It's complicated. That's what we're looking at this fall. Issues that are complicated. As you've heard, there are issues that, man, we're hearing on the news every single night. There are issues that are speaking loudly in our culture, shaping and directing our culture. There are issues that are making some of our own homes very complicated. You know, there's a, there's a variety of things that, that go into making it so complicated. You, you know, when you've got an issue, when you're in two different places, and that's part of what makes this so complicated, is we don't just disagree, we passionately disagree. I mean, we've got some issues in America right now where it's, it's not just a can't we all get along. We passionately disagree with each other. Issues that divide and anger. And yet, as we try to work through that, as we try to sort through it, we're doing that in a culture where we're also trying to say there's no right and wrong. Everybody can be right, even if the issues contradict, even if the issues collide. Well, we're not going to say anything's wrong, though. So that makes it really complicated when there's, there's no right and there's no wrong. It also makes it complicated, I think, when we have set as the highest standard in America, not truth, not, not right and wrong, not even really what works. You know what the highest standard is? Happiness. Personal happiness. What makes me happy? I think about the greatest crime in America today is not only to tell somebody they're wrong, but to tell them they're wrong in something that makes them happy. Hey, if it makes me happy, all bets off. You've you, you got to leave me alone in that. And yet, folks, this fall, we are going to say some things are right. And we're going to say some things are wrong. Whether they make somebody happy or not. And that, that's about as offensive as you can get in our culture. That, that's an, a very offensive thing to do. And when somebody is being offensive, when they're making statements like, well, that's, that's wrong. Have you ever heard this? Well, who made you God? Well, what, what makes you so special? What gives you the right? You know what? I think those are fair questions. I, I think those are good questions. So let me answer them. I'm not God. I do know him, but I'm not God. I also actually don't think that there's anything special about my voice. I don't, I don't think there's anything special about my ideas. I, I don't think there's anything inherent in what I'm saying that just has some kind of weight to it that somebody has to interact with it. Somebody has to live with it. No, I don't, I don't think there's anything special that way. As for my right, what's my right to say that? You know what? I don't think I have a right. I don't, I don't think there's anything inherent that says, I have a right to say this. I have a right to get in somebody's life, to get in somebody's ideas and, and point out what's right and wrong. Now, while I don't have a right, I have a mandate. You know, there is a difference. A right means that I not only get to do this, but I get to be protected in it. I get to be applauded for it. But a mandate is a little bit different. A mandate means I have to do this whether I'm applauded for it or not. I have to do this whether I'm liked for it or not. And that's what we learned last week in 2 Timothy 3 and 4, that, that while I may not have a right in our culture, I do have a mandate to live and speak God's truth. We have that, that responsibility, that mandate on our lives. And folks, when you're speaking God's truth, that means you're going to be saying some things are wrong. You're, you're, you're going to be saying that's not right. And, and when we do that, folks, when we, when we are speaking that mandate, when we're speaking that truth, we're going to refer to the Bible, right? 
And, and, and when we hold this up, what we're going to hear, when we say, well, we've got to do this because this is what the Bible says. You see, ultimately, folks, my goal is to take the debate from between me and them to them in the Scripture. You see, I don't, I don't want them arguing my idea versus their idea, but, but their idea versus what God says. You know, you know what? Even as I say that, I think that's not fair. You know, I've had people do that to me. I don't think it's fair. I, I've been in, in a counseling situation or, or maybe in an argument or maybe discussing something in Scripture and, and they start saying, well, God said, you know, well, well God's will, well, God told me. And, and so now all of a sudden the debate's no longer. It's like they're saying, you know what, you're, you're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with God. <laughs> well, well, what? How, how, do you, how do you even begin to have a discussion? And yet... That's kind of what I am saying this fall. That's kind of what you're saying when you're in some of their, in your discussions. And so let me address that right now, folks. I'm not right because I use two words, God said. My saying, God said, doesn't make me right. I'm not trying to keep the discussion between my lips and voice and their lips and voice. Ultimately, I want their eyes to travel down to interact with what is actually said on the pages of God's Word. That, that, That we speak with what is said there. That we work with what is said there. And so, folks, because of that, today is part two of my introduction to this series. You say, introduction? I thought we were going to start talking about the issues probably thinking, Pastor, you're trying to escape talking about the issues. No, I'm, I'm going to get to the issues. We're going to get there next week. If this is your first Sunday with us, what we're studying in this, this It's Complicated series, we're going to be looking at, not every one of these will necessarily be a sermon by itself. Some of them will be grouped together, but we're looking at marriage, we're looking at divorce, living together, pornography, money, racism, politics, homosexuality. We're looking at all of these different issues. And what we said last week We described why those issues, and and I'll sum them all up in four. Why are we looking at money, sex, politics, and racism? Because, folks, those are issues in our culture today that have gained a greater voice than God's Word, a, a greater voice than the church. We said, hey, we need to be speaking God's Word because those issues are shaping and directing where our culture is going. Of course, we not only introduced why we're looking at those things last week, but we also said, what's our goal in speaking to these things? It's to speak truth, but not with a stone in our hands. It's to speak truth with a, a desire to minister and to help, to speak both grace and truth. Now, what we're adding to that today, okay, this is what we're talking about. This is the goal of what we're talking about. But what we're trying to do today is explain the source of authority that we're drawing from. Because as we speak to each one of these issues, it ultimately is our goal to say, well, God said or God's word said, we're going to base everything on the book, right? We're going to base everything on the book, right? Yes, okay. Mm. Yes, we are. That's what we're doing. But hey, have you ever said, hey, the Bible says or God says and heard somebody respond by saying, well, I don't even believe in the Bible. Well, that's just your interpretation. Or you're just picking and choosing. As a matter of fact, we'll kind of look at this during the course of this. You you know what? Somebody will say, oh yeah, y'all go to Leviticus, that Old Testament book, and and point out there how homosexuality is wrong. But in the same book, it says not to eat shrimp. I don't see you condemning the shrimp industry. I, I don't see you trying to, you know, boycott restaurants that serve fried shrimp. 
Do you know what you would say to that? Do you know what the response is? You see, folks, as every follower of Christ, we need to be able to defend and explain the source of truth that we're drawing from. I'm not saying we'll win that argument. I'm not saying that that they'll convert over and say, oh, now I believe God's word. By the way, some of them might. Some of them might actually do that. But whether it changes them or not, we need to be able to explain why we go by the book. I do want to recommend, more than I can do in the sermon today, uh, a great resource for you. Seven reasons why you can trust the Bible. You don't have to worry about writing it down. It's, if you look inside your bulletin under the sermon area, Faith Talk, you'll see number one has the, the title and the author there. Seven reasons why you can trust the Bible. Erwin Lutzer, as you can see, it's not a big book. It's thin. It's very well written, easy to read, and it'll give you some key ideas. How did we get this book? Why these 66 books? Is it reliable? Does it have mistakes? How do we know this is God's Word? That's the kind of things that are going to be addressed and answered in here. So I really encourage you uh, to get this because, folks, again, every one of us should be able to defend this. Every one of us should be able to explain why we use the Bible. And here's why this is so important. Because while a person can dismiss your ideas and my ideas without consequence, they ignore me, they ignore me. But they can't dismiss God's word without consequences, can they? So we've got to raise that up. They've got to see that there's something different going on here than this is just what I believe or what I think. So why do we base everything on this book? Well, what is this book? The scripture teaches that this book is the word of God. It's the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Some of you may be used to, maybe you've memorized this verse. You sing that word inspired. All scripture is inspired. That's the way that word is often translated inspired. In the Greek, the literal word is breathed out. Every word of scripture is literally breathed out of God's mouth. And it's profitable in our lives. It, it, It reaps a profit. It teaches, it reproves, it corrects, it trains you and I to be right with God and to be right with man. So this is the word of God. Every bit of it from Genesis to Revelation is God's word. You know, your Bible is a little bit like Jesus in this. Jesus is 100% man and he's 100% God. We believe that, right? Okay, scripture is very similar. It's 100% written by men. You know, when we say this is God's word, we're not, you know, we're not saying that, that there was this paper laying there and angels flew over and dust from their wings fell down and boom, these words landed on the page. Now, we're not trying to make something mystical out of that. We're not even saying inspiration doesn't even mean that, that there was a handful of guys, they sit here and they took dictation from God. What was that last word? No, this, this book's written by men. Their personality comes through. Their thoughts and ideas come through. The, the time period, the circumstances going on around them, it all comes through. This book is written by some 40 authors. But this is where the miracle begins. This is where you begin to see there's something going on here more than, than here's some guys that wrote these letters and these books and somebody accumulated it. Because while they did this, this book was written over 1,400 years. Some of these authors didn't know each other. Certainly as it got later in time, they knew of the other one. But a lot of these guys didn't know each other. When David was writing Psalms, that doesn't mean he knew that one day Psalms would fit in a book called the Bible. 
That when Matthew was writing the Gospel of Matthew, he knew, okay, this is a sliver. This is a small book that will go in a bigger context. He didn't know that. And the amazing thing is, while all that was going on over all that time period, boy, when you open up your Bible and you read it from Genesis to Revelation, it doesn't read like an accumulation of 66 different books. It reads like one book. It reads like one story. One clear purpose, one clear set of directives, one clear set of explanations. It does that without error. It does it without contradiction. It does it without any negligence or missing anything. It it gives us a clear, concise, consistent story. Because while the 40-some guys did this, God superseded. God sovereignly brought it about so that when it was all said and done, what you and I were looking at was not the word according to Matthew Or the word according to David, but the word according to God. It's his book delivered through men, but his book. Now, what did did Jesus think about this book? I mean, we're followers of Jesus, right? Now, folks, on that one, we we, we got to do a lot better. We're followers of Jesus, right? Okay, if I'm following him, then what he thinks is what I think. What, what he thinks is important, I want to think is important. So what did Jesus think about the Word of God? What did he think about the Bible? He thought it was to be fulfilled and obeyed and taught. Now, taught, folks, here, don't think of a teacher and a lectern and class notes and 23 students sitting in front of you. Folks, when you're driving down the road and you share with your child why we do something or why we don't do something according to God's Word, that's teaching. When you're standing at the water cooler, around the coffee pot, discussing with friends, you know, something that went on the news last night, an issue that laws are being made on, and and you start to say, you know, God has spoken to that, that's teaching, okay? And that's what Jesus said the Word of God is to be in our lives. Look at this passage. This is from Matthew 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Jesus said, hey, don't think I came to get rid of the Old Testament. Don't come to dismiss that. No, just the opposite. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or not a dot. This phrase right here, folks, is profound. As a matter of fact, if you turn to Matthew chapter 5, you should underline this. In the Greek, it's iota or dot. In the Hebrew, if you were translating the Hebrew, it would be not a jot or a tittle. And guess what? We have this phrase in the English language. The dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. Now, this is why this statement is so big. There are those in the church, I would say, that have a more liberal view of Scripture. There are those who do not believe necessarily that this is without error or that we can trust all of it. I mean, you you know what? You can believe this. You don't have to believe that God parted the Red Sea. You don't have to believe, as Dale was talking about a moment ago, that Jesus actually walked on water. And you say, well, wait a minute. What about 2 Timothy 3 that says God inspired? And, 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 and those that kind of in their, that way of thinking about God's Word, they'll say, well, what God inspired? God inspired the idea. God inspired these 40 authors with, with God ideas And then these authors wrote stories to illustrate the ideas. Whether the stories were true or not, that's not important. What's important is a story illustrating a God idea. Now, would Jesus agree with that? By the way, their desire to go that way with Scripture, there's nothing in Scripture that directs you to think that way. You know, folks, you know what? There's something in us. We do want to set Scripture aside. 
We do want to water it down. We do want to make it smaller. We do want to belittle it. I don't want to obey it. I want to be... My personal happiness is the high guide in my life, not, not scriptures. And, and so there's something else that wants to do away with it. And there's some that even carry the name just by title that they're Christian and they're watering it down. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, listen, not only was the idea inspired by God, but so was the book. So was the chapter. So was the paragraph. The sentence was inspired. The word was inspired. It was inspired all the way down to the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. Right down to that level, it belongs to God. And that down to that level, it's going to be fulfilled. I'd say Jesus had a pretty high view of Scripture, wouldn't you? And because he did, then what does he say next? Therefore, therefore what? Because It's God's word right down to the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. Therefore, whoever relaxes, whoever waters down, whoever's dismissive with even the smallest of God's command goes right to the bottom of the barrel. They go right to the bottom of God's economy. You can't get any lower for God than dismiss his word, make small his word. But the one who teaches it, the one who's looking for an opportunity to give witness to what God says in any environment, any setting, with any person, boy, that person's at the top of God's kingdom. Well, I'd say Jesus, he thinks pretty highly of God's word, wouldn't you? Now, let's ask another question. Now, the question I'm about to ask might sound kind of dumb in light of the two questions I've just answered, but it's a real question, so let's answer it. A third question is, can, can we dismiss any part of God's Word? Is there any part that we can take out? Now, sitting in this room, I imagine a lot of us are not trying to do that. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're kind of embarrassed by some of God's Word, aren't we? I mean, that whole thing about wives being submissive to husbands, shh, don't tell them we say that. That sounds like a caveman. You know, hey, that thing about hell, ooh, that doesn't, that doesn't fly very well in our culture. I mean, there's got to be some things in the Bible. We can just take that out, not make such a big deal out of it. Can we, can we do that? Well, the Bible answers that for us, Revelation twenty two nineteen. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life. All right, I'm going to take that as a no. No, 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 we can't pull things out. No, we can't decide what doesn't belong or what we're embarrassed by or, or, or what we don't like. You know what's kind of interesting? Revelation 22, 19, 20 Revelation uh, is written by the Apostle John. And when he wrote this verse, he was coming to the end of Revelation. If you went to Revelation, you'd find out that chapter 22 is the last chapter. And verse 19 is about two verses from the end. And when this is written, this verse most directly applies just to Revelation. John is talking about the book of this prophecy, the revelation that you've just heard. But then God sovereignly takes what John wrote. He puts it in the Bible. Revelation is now the last book of the Bible. And so if you're reading from Genesis to Revelation, it would take a while, right? But if you're reading this whole thing as one book, when you get three verses from the end, you hear this. Out of what you just read, if you take anything out of it, that's bad news. And here's why, folks. It's real simple. We're not over the book. The book's over us. We don't go to the book and pick and choose what we like and don't like. But watch this. The book comes to us. And it picks and chooses what it doesn't like in our life. And here's why. Because at the end of the day, and I'm talking about the big end of the big day, 
you're not going to be judged by how you related to culture. You're not going to be judged in how your life approved of and fit into the times. Your life is going to be measured against God's Word. Your life is certainly not going to be measured against your heart. Oh, dear Lord, can we please get that? The highest thing to do in life is not follow your heart. I think that's like the biggest wisdom mankind has. And You know, it's all fine if you follow your heart. You know, folks, guess what? You're not going to stand before God one day and He look at you and go, you know what, that was completely and totally wrong, but you followed your heart, so I'll just respect it. No. You know what the Scripture actually says? Multiple times, it actually tells you, no. No, do not follow your heart. There's one time you can follow your heart, and it's when your heart is following God's Word. Okay? So we don't pick and choose. The Bible picks and chooses in our life. Now, this next question might sound like I'm contradicting myself. It's kind of the same question, but let's see how we might answer it. Now, I've just said we don't take anything out, right? Well, I didn't say that. The Bible said that. And yet, here's the question. Aren't there rules or commands that we don't obey anymore today? And shockingly, without contradicting myself, the answer is yes. Some of you are pretty excited right now, aren't you? Did he say part of the Bible we don't obey? Yeah, but it's the Scripture The Scripture defines that for us, not man and not the times. Now, what am I talking about? You know, the Bible is often referred to as the law. In the New Testament, they'll often use the phrase the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets is a reference to the Old Testament. And then there's just the law, which again, I said, can can actually refer to the whole thing. But most specifically in the Bible, when you see the word the law, quite often it's referring to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And the reason those five books are called the law is because about 65% of the content of those five books, and they're five big books, they're, they're five of the biggest books in the Bible, the content of those is the law. Now, what is the law? God has taken two million people and and He's helped them get out of Egypt. Remember that, parting the Red Sea? Okay, all right, three of us do that. Okay, so God has brought two million people through the Red Sea. They're out in the desert. They're on their way to the Promised Land. And God says to these people, I'm just crazy in love with y'all. I've chosen you to be my special people. And I want to I move and work through you to reveal myself to the rest of the world. And I love you guys so much. Man, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to come live right here with you. Ah, but here's the problem. How does a holy God live in an unholy neighborhood? How does a holy God live in an unholy house? Guess what the law tells me? How that can happen. The law is the mediator. The law is the guide to how God can take up residence in my presence and it be safe. (laughs) Not for him, for me. So the law guides in that. And there's all kinds of things in the law. There is the moral law. There's sacrificial law. There's ceremonial law. There's, There's the priesthood law. There's the temple law. And all of these areas of the law are explaining, hey, this is what it takes for a holy God to live among people. And then they sought to to follow that law. That law would be, their their keeping of the law would be their access into the presence of God. But boy, we failed at that horribly. You say, we, I wasn't there. Oh, you failed. Trust me. We've all failed. We fail horribly at keeping the law. And the crazy thing is, there's still this God who has this crazy love for us. And so he sends his son 
to fulfill the law for us. Matthew chapter 5, we just read it. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it for you. I came to do what you could not do. And then I would go to the cross. And on that cross, I would pay the penalty for all the places you missed it. All the places you rebelled against it. All the places you failed in it. By the way, you ever still as a Christian scratch your head sometimes? Why did it have to be blood and death and a cross? Guess what? It's the law that explains all that. It's the law that defines that for us. So Jesus comes, fulfills the law, and now Jesus is my mediator. Now he's my tutor. He guides me into the presence of God. He makes it safe for me to be there. So when I go before God, I'm hanging on to, I'm clinging to Jesus, not how well I kept the law the last seven days. And so now with Jesus as the mediator, there are things in the law that are fulfilled. There are things in the law that changes. There are chapters after chapters in the Old Testament called the dietary law. How we're to eat. And yet in Mark 7, 19, it said that Jesus declared all foods clean. Okay, if all foods are clean, then that's, that's not something I have to follow anymore, which actually answers, and actually, folks, this debate is brought up a lot, this issue about, well, you say this book says homosexuality is wrong, but it also says eating shrimp is wrong. Yeah, but Jesus erased the shrimp. He, he erased the shellfish one. Okay, so that part of the law we do not follow anymore. And then there's the sacrificial law. I mean, folks, that's probably the biggest part of it. Chapter after chapter after chapter of what kind of sacrifice? What kind of animal? How is it to be done? When is it to be offered? There's the daily offerings. Then there's the big once-of-year offering. Well, Jesus became the sacrifice for all time. And Hebrews, uh, the, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, is the book that it's like the brother to Leviticus. It, it's, the, it's the book that takes Leviticus and kind of walks us through how Jesus fulfilled each part of the law for us. Look at this passage. Now the Messiah has appeared, high priest, lots of laws about who the priesthood is, the clothes they wear, how they work. But you know what? We don't have all those laws anymore. We have one high priest, Jesus of good things that have come in the great and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered the Holy of Holies once for all. He went one time for all people. So there's no need for this ongoing sacrifice. He didn't go with the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Okay, now with that being the case, therefore, He is the mediator. The law is no longer my mediator. Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. The word covenant is often used with marriage. And so you could almost put here, Jesus is now the mediator of this new relationship, this new love relationship, this new committed relationship. It is Jesus that is going to make it happen. Now, when you hear me explain all this, you could raise your hand. And say, wait a minute, Pastor, you quoted 2 Timothy 3.16 a moment ago, and it said, that, it said that all Scripture is profitable. But it sounds like a whole lot of this really isn't of much profit to us anymore. And we don't need all that stuff in Leviticus and Exodus and, and Deuteronomy, right? Oh, folks, no, nothing could be further from the truth. Man, I tell you, one of the most valuable things you could do in your life is find a way to deeply study the book of Leviticus. You know, it's out of the book of Leviticus that we first hear, be holy because I am holy. There is a command on your life and my life to be holy. I bet if I asked the average person here, are you holy? I'm guessing most of us would answer something like, uh, yeah, kind of, I think, maybe, I try to be. 
Okay. And yet I open up Leviticus and I find out some things about holiness. I find out that it is incredibly detailed. I find out that holiness touches every single area of life. Nothing is left untouched by holiness. When I read about holiness in Leviticus, I really find out it's not a kind of, sort of, I think, maybe, I hope, see, I'm trying type of thing. It's something to impact every moment and everything we touch on this earth. The more I study Leviticus, the more I understand how deeply I failed at what God is like and, and how safe it is to live in His presence. I, 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 I understand more how deeply I failed the character of who He is. And the more I understand that, the more I appreciate what Jesus came and accomplished for me. I bet a lot of us in here would say, well, man, I, I appreciate what Jesus did for me on the cross. There's appreciating and then there's appreciating more, right? And I'll tell you something, folks. If you studied Leviticus, you would appreciate more. Man, I can't. I couldn't do that. Yeah, that's why it's so great that Jesus did do that. So, yeah, there's tremendous profit in understanding the law and still studying these books today. Now, I've said that Jesus came and in so doing, a lot of that law was set aside. I did not say it was all set aside. Ceremonial, yes. Dietary, yes. Sacrificial, yes. Temple, yes. Priesthood, yes. It was all set aside because the Scripture said it was fulfilled and set aside. But there was an aspect of the law that was not set aside. The moral law. The moral law. That's, that's where it says, you know, you know, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't murder. All those things are still in place. You say, well, how do you know they're still in place if all those other things were fulfilled? Because they were all repeated in the New Testament. All that other law was not repeated, and where it was repeated, it was just said, here's how Jesus fulfilled it. But on the moral law, every bit of the moral law that is communicated in the old is repeated in the new. As a matter of fact, watch what Jesus does with the moral law in the new. Matthew chapter 5 again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, he's talking about the old covenant, the old testament, the ten commandments, you shall not murder. Y'all have heard that, right? Okay. This is the 7, this is the 6.30 a.m. service? Yes, okay. You shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry is liable to the same judgment. You've heard it was said in the, in the Ten Commandments that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Wow! Jesus not only does not dismiss the moral law, he tightens it up a little bit. He, he makes it even stricter. No dismissing. He makes it even stricter there, folks. Now, here again, my point right now today is not to teach on anger and murder and lust and adultery. It's to say we're not picking and choosing. It's God's Word that tells me what to do with God's Word. Is, God's, is Jesus God? Yes. Is Jesus telling me what to do with God's Word? Yes. See, I'm not picking and choosing. Well, this is how I'm going to look at it. Well, this is how I think it's to be interpreted. No, God's Word is guiding me in what to do with God's Word. Now, folks, I could conclude today with dozens of passages that instruct you and me on the, the kind of weight, the kind of value that the Word of God is to play in our lives. What is its role? What are we to be doing with it? One I like. I'm not even sure if it's the best one. It's just, it's just one of my favorite ones. 
I like Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. It's in the Old Testament. Ezra was a priest. He said, Ezra had set his heart to study the law, to do it, and to teach it. He had set his heart. See, that's where we follow our heart, when our heart is set on following God's word. And Ezra had set his heart as an example, as a model for you and me. What's the role this book is to play in my life? Why am I always quoting the scriptures to my kids or talking about it at work? Or it's kind of easy for me to talk about the word of God at work. I admit that's not really a fair comparison. But why do we always do this? Because my heart has to be set on studying it, doing it, and proclaiming it to others. You know, we studied Psalm 119 this summer, didn't we? That was a great study. And when we were going through Psalm 119, it actually gave us the kind of evidence that you would look for, that I would look for in my life to know if I've genuinely set my heart on God's Word. Setting my heart on God's Word is not something I just pay lip service to. How do, you, how do you know if your heart is actually intent on following God's Word? Your heart has made the Word of God the priority. It's preeminent. It guides. It judges. It rules. It speaks to every area of our, How do I know? Psalm 119 says, you know, when you've set your heart on God's Word, when you're in God's Word, it is as refreshing and as nourishing and as sweet as honey on your lips. That's how you know when your heart is set on God's Word. It says in Psalm 119 that when your heart is set on God's word, that it is as valuable. When you're in here, you're finding as much value and as much worth in this as you do money in your pocket. That's how you know your heart is really set on God's word. And so, folks, if, if this book has not become like honey on my lips and money in my pocket, then I need to say, God, my heart's not set on where you'd have it. Would you guide me to that? Would you help me with that? Would you show me tomorrow what I need to start doing with this book? So that's what happens in my life. Folks, we need to be a people who are constantly saying, God said. It is the standard, it is the guide for everything we are, everything we do, everywhere we go, everything we say, everything we think. It is everything. So when people ask, well, why do you have to do that? Why do you have to say that? Why do you believe that? I have to go by the book. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Bible. I thank you for a book that teaches me things I would not know without it. I would not know who you are or what you are like. I would not know what heaven is and, and how to, with a sense of confidence and security, know that I can go there. Folks, without the Bible, or God, without the Bible, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know all the answers to life that you've given us. You address everything, every issue, every problem, every situation that we're dealing with, that we're going through. Your word speaks to, and it speaks to consistently and clearly. It never fails. Nobody fails when they follow your word. It never, it never leads somebody to where things break. Your word works, and we thank you for it. Lord, I would pray for myself. I would pray for us as individuals. I would pray for us as a church. When people look at us, it is very clear. We study the book. We do the book. And we proclaim the book. We're a witness to your word everywhere we can be. Holy Spirit, we need your help in that.
And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.